Okay, so uh, as you guys know, we're in our, in our series on Revelation, uh, and Caitlin Wildington is going to read our passage for us this morning. It's from Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. Go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. Um, all right, here we go. The word of the Lord. Um, and the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pit- pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, Caitlin. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, and ask that as we Uh, open it as we study it this morning. Uh, We ask and trust that you will reveal yourself to us uh, in a way that is kind, compassionate, Lord, and uh, exactly what we need. Um, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So big picture, what we are seeing this morning in our passage uh, is that this church that Jesus is writing to, that he's speaking to, the church that we have here, uh, this is, this is an, a, an introduction kind of to the book of Revelation for them. It's framing up how Jesus wants them to receive the rest of this letter. And what Jesus is saying about this church is that this church in Laodicea, it's sick. And because this church is sick, that it, Jesus himself uh, is sick with their sickness, sick because of their sickness. And that in his love and his care, he's addressing that space in their life, the place that they've been consumed by sin, the place that they've been made sick, because what he wants for them is to be made well. That's kind of, that's, that's where we're going this morning. That's the overall message of, of this passage. And the sickness that afflicts these people in Laodicea is the sickness of self-sufficiency. That's the, that's the sin that Jesus is, is exposing in them, that he's coming to heal in them. And as we study this passage, we're going to talk about the revealer. So who is the one who is doing the revealing in this passage? We've got to get to know him as he shows himself to us here. Talk about the revealer and then the revelation. What is it that he is revealing to this church in Laodicea? What is it that he's showing them about their self-sufficiency? And then finally, we'll talk about the remedy, the call to repentance that he gives them. So the revealer, the revelation, and the remedy. And that'll take us here uh, to the Lord's table this morning. Okay, so let's, let's talk about who we see uh, doing the revealing here in this passage. And, and what I'll remind you is that what we've talked about so far is that the book of Revelation is all about revealing or uncovering uh, the hiddenness of reality. 
It's all about showing us what's really going on behind the scenes. And that it does this by using sometimes wild imagery to shock us and to get our attention. And that in doing so, it it puts us off balance and it can get past our defenses and actually address what's happening in our hearts. And this kind of of apocalyptic literature, we we don't have a genre that mirrors it perfectly, and so it can be hard for us to kind of wrap our minds and our hearts around, but we do have a literature that aims to reveal, that aims to show us the true nature uh, of reality. I was in a bookstore just this week uh, and picked up this book called On Our Best Behavior. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Price Women Pay to Be Good, and it's by an author, Elise Lowen, and this is how she starts the book. She says, in late 2019, I hyperventilated for an entire month. She says, I sat in my therapist's office that month in exhausted tears. I feel like I can't breathe, I said. Where is it in your body? It feels, I said, as if something is sitting on my chest, and no matter what I do, I can't get it off. That sounds really scary. We sat quietly. I'm just so tired. I don't understand. I try to do it all right, to be perfect, to be everything for everyone. I pause to breathe before rushing out. Why isn't that enough to give me some space? What more can I do to push this thing away? And he looked at me. I think you're trying to live up to some sort of saintly ideal, yes. But I think it's deeper. That if you feel like you're good enough, you'll be safe from judgment, loved. This observation hit right in my clenched heart. What is it sitting on my chest exactly, I asked. It's whatever tells you that you're not. And then a few paragraphs later in the introduction, she asked the question, where did this beast come from? Where did it get its power, and why was I so willing to submit? She writes, we're all stuck in a web. Every one of us is conditioned and caught in a system that we cannot see, but its effects are suffocating and deadening. And once you discern the web and its perverted construction, you can begin clipping strands one by one, letting falsehoods about who we are blow away. Do you hear that? She's trying to accomplish the same thing as the book of Revelation, right? Uncovering the true nature of reality. She even uses some of that same imagery of a beast, a beast that's sitting on her. And so, as kind of disorienting as these images can be, that the the purpose of the book is something we're really familiar with. There are all kinds of modern ways that we do this same thing. We know the genre. And I'll tell you, I have not read all of Elisa's book. She's a very good writer from the introduction. But I would disagree with her with how she uh, analyzes and describes this web. She identifies uh, the kind of the core problem as monotheism and Christian virtues specifically. And if we had time, I would love, maybe this is, maybe this is a different time, to kind of uncover her uncovering. We could talk about how Christianity, far from subjugating women, brought them newfound freedom and dignity in the ancient world, which is why the church has always been full of more women than men. And that would be an interesting discussion, but, but what I want to highlight more than anything is the fact that so often the uncovering that happens in our world needs its own uncovering, right? Like the expose on the expose. And you know that when you read investigative journalism that you're always wondering, well, what's this person's agenda? 
because that's, that's, what, that's what it means to live in a postmodern world is that we are aware of the fact that everybody has an agenda. That even the person who's uncovering the agenda has an agenda. Which is a gift in a sense to be aware of that, but then also feels like a trap, doesn't it? Because then who's right? Is it possible to ever know what's true? But what if, what if there was someone who was outside of the system? What if there was someone whose perspective uh, was, was above all of the other perspectives? What if there is someone who was able to see so clearly that they could actually tell us what is true? And what if that person actually wanted to tell us what's true? Would that be good news? Yes, then we could finally know our eggs healthy or not, right? All of the questions you're burning to find out. What is actually true? That's Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing for us in the book of Revelation. That's the, the, the introduction to this, specific, uh, to this specific letter. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. It's a guy, Robert Mounts, in his commentary, he talks about how amen is this, it's this Hebrew lo- loan word that means agreement. An agreement that's valid and binding. And to call Jesus the amen, to personify the amen, is to say that Jesus is perfectly conformed to reality. That reality is perfectly exemplified in him. And that he's a faithful and a true witness. That Jesus sees what's true and he's faithful to tell us what's true. That we've got someone who can give us a real perspective on what is happening. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That Jesus says, I see clearly, and I'm actually going to apply that seeing to you in your life. It's called reproof. It's called discipline. This idea of discipline, uh, it's an idea of training, of teaching how to live in the world, how to invite people deeper into what it means to live a full life. That's what discipline is all about. Because You were disciplined as a kid, right? Yes, maybe. We probably all have some experience of receiving discipline when we were growing up. And I'm not talking about punishment exactly. Punishment is about payment. Punishment is sometimes used in discipline, but punishment is not discipline. Discipline is about the training that we received when we were growing up. When my parents said, hey, you need to finish your homework because when you were an adult, you were going to be assigned things, and it's important that you're responsible. So we're going to have consequences if you don't do the things we said that you needed to do, right? Does anyone... Okay, that's discipline. Now, here's, the, here's the, the, the limit with earthly discipline, though, is that our parents didn't see things 100% clearly. Which, if you're a parent now, is also very humbling to acknowledge, right? That we don't see things 100% clearly, which is why there are always misses in the discipline in ways that are small and sometimes in ways that are large. But the reason that the discipline is still worth it, the reason that your parents tried to do it and we try to do it as parents is because we know it would actually be more unloving to just throw the discipline out the window. That discipline at its heart is supposed to be ideally an act of care. And that's why Jesus says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And this word for love here, the word that is often used for love in the Bible is the, word, the Greek word agape, which is this idea of uh, love in action. But the word here, the Greek word is phileo, which is about affection. 
that Jesus is saying the people that I have affection for are the people that I discipline and reprove, which is the very question we're asking when we're in the midst of being disciplined, isn't it? In the midst of being trained, do you even love me? And like, I know technically you love me, but like, do you like me? And Jesus is saying, yes, I love you and I like you. My heart is warm for you. It's full of affection for you. That's why I'm willing to discipline you. That's why I'm willing to tell you what I see and to train you on what is right, even though it may be hard to hear. That's from the spirit of love and compassion for his people that he's telling them what's true which is good to know because when we get to the revelation that, that Jesus gives in this passage, it sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Yikes. On all the other letters, Jesus has, it, he kind of does the compliment sandwich, you know? He's got like a good thing to say, but, like, but also this, but, like, but remember, there's no compliment sandwich here. They just get the rebuke. And we're tempted to think, yikes, Jesus. Do you even love these people? And he says, yes, I actually have great affection for them, which is why I have great affection for you, which is why I'm telling you what I see, which is why I care about giving this revelation to you in the first place. So we've got to ask, what is Jesus uncovering in this passage? What is he revealing to the Laodiceans? And what, is it, what does it reveal about us? And the heart of the, of the revelation that Jesus gives to them, the, the insight is, is uh, he calls out that, that they believe that they need nothing. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That the heart of the issue is that the people in the church in Laodicea are convinced of their own self-sufficiency. It's like this. The peop- this is the image I want you to have of the people in Laodicea, okay? They're, they're looking in the mirror, and they're like, oh, yeah, I look good. That what they see, when they look at themselves, what they see is, oh, I am self-sufficient. I need nothing. This is a weird experience, by the way, to be talking to you guys while I'm talking in the mirror, okay? I need nothing. And when they, and when they see that they need nothing, they think, man, that looks good on me. I want other people to see the fact that I need nothing. This is beautiful. This is good. This is true. This is ideal, is the fact that I need nothing. And they, and they, they with, their, with their money, Jesus says, that's a part of how they have created this image. They've invested in it. They have used their resources to convince themselves and to show everyone else how not in need they are. Because money can do that, can't it? Jesus isn't condemning money in and of itself, but he's saying the way that they're using it, the fact that you have so much of it, it has convinced you that you you need nothing. This this city, Laodicea, there is this big earthquake in A.D. 60, and the city was basically leveled. And what would happen in in that situation is that when a city was destroyed like that, people would appeal to, to the imperial government in Rome, and they would write them a big fat check to rebuild the city. And the Laodiceans said, we'll do it ourselves. We are totally self-sufficient, and they did not accept a dime from the government to rebuild their city, and it was a major point of pride for them. 
No, we are self-sufficient. It was also this major uh, center for textile manufacturing. They had these sheep that, that because of very selective breeding, had this very, uh, this very fine and shiny, glossy black wool. And, and so they were incredibly fashionable, which these things are all connected, right? That if you've got enough money, you can create an image of yourself that starts with your clothes and goes all the way, that reaches into all the other places of your life that exudes self-sufficiency, that covers up nakedness and shame. It's like when Barista Parlor opened in East Nashville. Do any of you, were any, were any of you here when that happened? I'll just remind you what it was like, okay? Uh, I lived in a different part of town, and East Nashville was like the gritty, cool part of the city, right? And this coffee shop opened, and the rumors that we heard about Barista Parlor were out of control. Like at Barista Parlor, they won't make you an Americano because their espresso is too good to water down. I don't know if they said that, but that's what I was told they said. Like, oh, someone asked for creamer, and they said, oh, we don't put creamer in our coffee here. Again, I don't know if that's true, but that was the rumor. So when I was going to make the journey over to Barista Parlor, you better believe I put on the most hipster clothes I owned, right? Because I didn't want them to know that I didn't know what I was doing. So I'm going to cover it up. I've got my, I've got my black t-shirt and I've got my like buffalo check flannel and I think probably not these jeans because that was 23 then, so that's different. But similar jeans, okay? And I'm going to walk in and I'm going to exude to you my self-sufficiency, the right that I have to be here, starting with the way I dress, but with the life that is curated to match what's happening here because I'm showing you I'm self-sufficient. I know it's barista parlor. It's silly, but it's true, you know? Our commitment to our self-sufficiency, it runs so deep, doesn't it? So deep. Guys, with our money, we can buy literally anything that we want. We can buy what we used to have to ask people for, like a ride to the airport. Or, uh, or like having someone deliver your groceries. When you're sick, you don't have to ask someone to help you. You can just pay someone to do it. You can pay somebody to cuddle you. That's a real thing. I'm seeing your faces. It seems like not many of you have done it, but maybe a few of you have. I don't know, okay? Let's not judge. People who are so lonely, this is real. People who are so lonely and so desperate for human touch and interaction, not in a sexual way, just, just to feel that someone else cares about them, are willing to pay someone to do that. And if you think that is silly, think about how many people we pay to listen to us. Right? That, that's, that's, that's what we do with our counselors. And again, it's not a, it's not, I'm not saying that to condemn anything, but just to acknowledge that through our money, we can purchase or create this illusion of self-sufficiency for ourselves that flattens our world into economic exchange. Think about all the talk of self-care. This idea that I have what I need within myself to recharge myself. That if I could just create enough time and find the right hobby, I would be able to take care of myself the signs in the middle of the pandemic that, that were everywhere that said, you are enough. You're enough. You're self-sufficient. You have everything you need in and of yourself. I mean, we could talk about all kinds of ways we experience that in our work, right? That the last thing I want to do is show up in the job and confess, here's the thing, I have no idea what's going on here. I've been in that situation before. And you have to tell your boss, yeah, can you just explain this to me like maybe I'm a fourth grader? We're always trying to hide that or even think about the plummeting uh, marriage rate in the United States. 
that we consistently are resisting uh, being dependent on someone else. Yeah, like we can live together. Yeah, we can do the whole thing. But, but let's, not like, let's not put any contract on it because I want to be able to leave whenever I need to. That just like the Laodiceans, when we are radically committed to our self-sufficiency. But here's the thing. Uh, it's not working, is it? You can read about the epidemic of loneliness in our society, that we are so deeply lonely. There's a quote from this book, The Gospel of Wellness, that I've told you guys I'm reading. This woman is talking about what it was like to lose her dad and and talking about self-care, and she says, self-care went only so far. To be honest, I needed consoling. I needed support. I needed a way to express and make sense of my grief. She's saying, I'm not enough that I am not totally self-sufficient. And the idea that we are enough or that we should be enough, man, that is like throwing a drowning person a rock to carry in the ocean. Oh, of course we're not enough. And the burner, the idea that we should be, is crushing. That's what Jesus is exposing here. He's saying, you are looking at this mirror and you see your self-sufficiency and you think that it's beautiful, but it's not beautiful. It's the opposite of that. It's not making you who you're supposed to be. It's deforming you. It's like when I was in high school and I bought a leather jacket. I didn't buy it. I think I convinced my grandparents to buy it for me. I had two cousins who I thought were very cool who had leather jackets, and I was like, I want to be cool like them. I want a leather jacket. I was a senior in high school. I should have known better, but I didn't. So I got one, and I wore it, and I thought, man, this is it. And then I can tell you exactly where I was sitting between uh, the warning bell and, like, the class starting bell in first period calculus class when Lauren came up to me and made a joke about my jacket. I know, it's sad. It's okay, I'm okay, okay? (laughs) But what I realized is, this is not accomplishing what I think it's accomplishing. I'm putting this on because I think it's making me cool, and it's not, and I never wore it again. Oh, I know, okay, it's okay, it's okay. Because Jesus, Jesus is doing that for us. He's saying that what you were putting on, this image that you were creating for yourself, that you're saying, isn't this cool, isn't this beautiful, isn't this awesome? He's saying, no, it's not. But he's not doing it to mock us, to make fun of us. He's doing it because he loves us, because he's showing us we actually have a deep and desperate need in our own hearts that he desires to meet. Guys, and here's the thing about the church in Laodicea. This is is really important, is that this idea of self-sufficiency had actually come to permeate the church. We just talked about all the ways that self-sufficiency is like out there in the world, okay? But it had gotten in here, in all of those ways that it's out there, and also in a very different way. Because this church that that identified themselves as followers of Jesus had actually put Jesus outside the door. Think of how sad that is. That Jesus is standing at the door of people who confess to know him, and he's knocking because he's not already in there eating with them. He's been locked outside. 
that church has become a place that Jesus has been locked outside of, that people are saying, we don't actually need Jesus to do what we're doing in here. Now, do you think that they actually said that? Probably not. But it was the way that they were thinking about their spiritual lives. And that can happen in a few different ways. Like one of them is, is in legalism that I can take God's law and I can shrink it down to something that's so small that I can check the boxes and I can convince myself I don't need Jesus to have any kind of grace on me because believe me, I've got it totally figured out. Or we kind of go the other direction and we say, God, you know, the law, the commands of Jesus, they don't really matter. We're all good people, right? We're good people, they're good people, we're all good people. And we, church can become this place where we like pat each other on the back to remind each other how good we actually are. Let's all like get together and remind each other how, how much uh, we have it together. And y'all, I'll just tell you, I stand up here and I look at you all each week and you look good, okay? It would be easy to be here and to think that we have it all together. And to actually shake hands with each other in that to like say we're all a part of this conspiracy and what we're going to do together is convince each other how much we don't need Jesus. Because let me confess, I hate the feeling of neediness. Don't you? That if in my marriage I have this thought that I, man, we're in a place right now where I need something outside of myself to help me, I think that something has gone wrong. That in my friendships, if I'm at a place where I think, God, I, I don't know how to be a friend, how to make this thing work. I need help from outside of me in doing that. Oh, something is wrong with me for needing that. I resist it. I do everything I can to avoid feeling that, that feeling of neediness. Jesus said, no, no, no. That's the point. That's what he said when he's saying, you're, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're wretched, you're blind, you're naked. He's calling out all of these very specific idols in this church, and he's saying, no, you are not self-sufficient. You have a desperate need that only I can fill. Will you acknowledge it? That's this whole business about oh, hot and cold, spitting out of the mouth. Jesus is not commenting on their lack of like emotion in the worship service. He's not coming in here and saying, hey, y'all better raise your hands a little bit more. That's not what this is about, okay? Hot or cold. This idea like, oh, it'd be better that you were either like emotionally very on fire or he would rather you be a stone cold atheist. That's not what this passage is saying. Okay, there is this, there is this town nearby called Hierapolis that had these uh, mineral hot springs that people would go to, to to relax and be healed. And then there was another town a few miles down the street called Colossae. And Colossae had this freshwater spring, like Fiji water, you know, bottled at the source. Cold, refreshing, brought life to people. But Laodicea didn't have its own source of water. So they built this aqueduct that brought water from the hot springs into town. But by the time it got to town, it was lukewarm and very like minerally gross. And when you would drink it, you would, I just want to spit, I want to spit that out. That's what Jesus is saying here. That as a church, when we exile Jesus, when, he's, when we stick him outside of the church, when we kick him outside of our lives, when we have convinced ourselves that we are self-sufficient, Jesus is saying, I want to, I want to vomit that out of my mouth. That's disgusting. The church is no longer a place of healing. It's no longer a place of refreshing. It's a place that has taken the worst things about the world and brought them in here and then made them worse. 
So let me remind you who you are, Jesus says. Let me remind you how desperate you are for me and let me teach you that that is good. The remedy is that we would repent. So verse 19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That when we look in this mirror and when we see our self-sufficiency, rather than saying, I'm amazing, this is beautiful, this is good, this is true, that what Jesus has done is he's, he's taken off the blinders of our eyes, he's healed us, he's given us sight to look at that and say, actually, my self-sufficiency is harming me. It's deforming me that this actually, this self-sufficiency is ugly. And that in repentance, we would see who we are and that we would turn away from that. This, we talked about this last week. We would turn away from this and that we would see Jesus. That we would see him in the beauty of who he is. The beginning of God's creation is what our text tells us. When it says that Jesus is the beginning of creation, it means that he, he, is, uh, he is the fount from which all of creation flows. By him and through him and to him are all things, is what the letter to, Col- to the church in Colossi- Colossae says. By him and through him and to him are all things. It, think about this with me for a minute. We often think about uh, the glory of God as residing in the things that we can't understand. This is God in the gaps. Then when we don't understand something, when it's kind of beyond our comprehension, when science hasn't penetrated its mysteries yet, we say, wow, isn't it amazing that God can do this thing that we don't understand? That is amazing. But let me remind you, it is also amazing all of the things that God has done that we do understand. To look out at the world, to see its intricacies, all the, all the interdependencies of the world that God has created, that all of that, when we do understand it, still testifies to the glory and the mystery of God, that all things are by him and through him and to him, that it all holds together and has its being in the being of Jesus. That everything about who we are, the fact that our molecules hold together, the fact that we have breath, that that all points us to our dependency on Jesus. That when we turn from being enamored with ourselves and turn to Him, we see the one who gives us everything that we have on whom we are totally dependent and who gives us those things as an act of love. who says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. He says, come and buy from me. What is it like to buy something from Jesus? Isaiah 55 tells us. It says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. To come and buy from Jesus is to come and receive from Jesus. But but Jesus, that when we turn away from our self-sufficiency and we turn toward Jesus, that what we see is the God who is the beginning of all things and the God who delights to give good gifts to his children. That that that's, that's the vision that captures us. That's the beauty that captures us. It's this Jesus who says he is standing at the door knocking. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, which means he's knocking, 
and he's speaking. That he's standing at the door knocking of your, of your heart and he's calling your name. Like, take yourself out of what it's like when people come to your door now because they're trying to sell you something, okay? Not like that. But like, remember when you were a little kid on a Saturday morning and you were so excited to hear the knock on the door? Can you come out and play? Can I come in and play? That's Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. Can I come in and be with you? Song of Solomon uses a very similar picture of a lover standing at the door knocking and calling the name of his beloved. Saying, can I come in and make a meal for you? Can I come in and share a meal with you? Can I come in because I want to be with you? And that when Jesus comes in to, to eat a meal with us, that he's proclaiming his covenant love for us. He's proclaiming that he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. A God who delights to give us what we can't earn for ourselves. And when we repent, turn away from being enamored by our self-sufficiency and turn toward Christ, that's what we see. Oh, and it's beautiful and it's good and it changes our perspective on what it means to be a human, that what it means to be a human is to be dependent on him for everything. And that's what brings us to this communion table. That this table is the place that we confess our neediness for Christ. This table is the place that we say, Jesus, I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. It's the place that we say to Jesus, my sin is so great that if I were left to deal with it on my own before you, I would be hopeless. Jesus, I'm in such great need of you. That this table is the place that we recognize how poor and wretched and naked we are when we are left on our own. It's the place that we acknowledge that all of our self-sufficiency, far from making us beautiful, actually deforms us. This is the place that we recognize that, the place that we run to and say, Jesus, I'm in desperate need of you, that all I have to offer you is my need of you. Would you meet me there? And this is the place that Jesus says, yes. Yes, I've, I have, I've been waiting for you to come here. I've been knocking at the door of your heart. I delight in the fact that you are finally recognizing your need for me. Yes, come on. Come on and let me feed you. Let me feed you the meal that I have prepared for you, which is my body and my blood that I have spilled because of how much I love you. That's what we encounter at this table, which is why it always comes with a warning. That if you come to this table and you're saying, I, actually, I don't actually need Jesus, then this table is not for you right now. Or if you're coming here as a Christian and you're saying, man, uh, there are parts of my life, though, that I'm really going to keep for myself, that I believe I actually have it under control, and that even though you say that what I'm doing is not good, Jesus, I know better than you. Now, this table is not a place for that. You've got to deal with that first. This table is for a people who are desperate, a people like us. So what we're going to do here in a minute is the band's going to come up and they're going to play, I think, four songs this morning. And the goal is to create space for you to be with Jesus, for you to reflect and to ask him, Lord, would you reveal in my heart the, place that I'm, the places that I'm committed to my own self-sufficiency? 
Would you show me my need for you? And that as he does that, that you would come up here and get to be nourished by him. You can, you can take your time, guys. This is not fast food. It's Labor Day weekend. We're not crowded, okay? We got, this, we got the time. And when you're ready, you can put out your hands and the servers will give you the elements to be reminded of Jesus feeding you, to actually let him feed you. You can also come up here and you can ask for prayer. You can ask the people who are going to be up here to step into your story and, and uh, to speak what's true about you, to pray what's true about you, even if it doesn't feel true in the moment. But even if you are not a believer here this morning and you're not going to take the elements, you're still welcome to come here and receive the prayer. And when you're done up here, you can go to the take a prayer, leave a prayer board in the back, and you can, you can invite someone else into the midst of your need. Write down your prayer, leave it up there, let someone else take it and pray for you. Grab someone else's prayer as a way of, as with them as a community, us stepping into the reality that we are desperate and needy. Also, as a side note, we do have gluten-free communion for the first time in a while. So if you need that, you can be up here at this kneeler over here on the far side, okay? So let me read to you uh, out of 1 Corinthians 11, these words uh, of institution about the Lord's Supper. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you uh, for your clear sight, Lord, for your perspective that is so much greater than our perspective. God, we ask that uh, even as we hear these babies crying out now, that we would be reminded that that is true about our hearts, Lord, that our hearts are so needy for you. And Lord, as we cry out for you, uh, Lord, would you meet us in our need? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.